Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt And I just thought, well, I had figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Story Clutter, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and before we get started, I want to invite you, dear listener, to participate in our audience survey. We want to get to know you better, and we also want to find out what you'd like to hear more of and less of from us as we're making some changes to the podcast this fall. Also, anyone who fills out this survey is entered to win a Story Collider hoodie, and who doesn't want that? So, to take the survey, please visit storycollider.org. Now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. This week, our stories are about being taken seriously, something I definitely struggle with. I can't tell you the number of times I've been dismissed because I still kind of look like a teenage child. Just the other week, I was in Germany with my mom, and we were at the car rental place waiting to get the keys to our rent-a-car. And the man checking us in asked if I would be driving. When I said yeah, he then looked at me and then at my mom with this kind of questioning look like, are you sure she can drive? Then he proceeds to start to explain that there's a young driver's fee for adding me, but I think he stops when he catches my face being like, uh, sir, what are you talking about? And so he asks me, how old are you? And when I tell him I'm 30, he doesn't believe me until he looks at my driver's license. And I know everyone says I should feel lucky because when I'm older, I'll look younger, but I just want some gosh darn respect. Something both our storytellers are in search of as well. Our first story is from Adam Rubin. It was recorded in Washington, D.C. in July 2022. The theme that night was Crossroads. So I'm a scientist, and we, um, we like to think of science as a meritocracy, but we know it is not. It's very hierarchical. And I think I learned this when I got my first job out of grad school. And this was, I was literally three days out of grad school when I got this job. I was working at a small biotech company in Maryland, uh, making an experimental vaccine for malaria. It was my dream job. It was something that I was so enthusiastic about working on. But being three days out of grad school, I was clearly the lowest PhD on the food chain. But I worked, and I advanced, and I published, and I got a promotion and a raise, and seven years later... In 2015, I was still the lowest PhD on the food chain. It just kind of happened that way. It's a small company, so there just weren't people below me. And it wouldn't have mattered, except like I could always feel that they still looked at me as that 29-year-old who had joined them in the beginning. And so I remember like one of my coworkers was taking someone around the company and um, you know, like giving them a tour, and they came to my desk, and and she said, oh, this is Adam. He's one of our junior scientists. 
Like, how embarrassing. I'm like, yeah, uh-huh, I know, but I've almost got my merit badge. It's just pipetting. So at some point, I'm just like, look, I'm, I'm 36. At what point am I going to be an actual scientist and not just a scientist in training? And I really, really felt this every fall when we had this annual consortium, big conference for all of our collaborators around the globe. We'd meet in a city and give each other presentations about what we were working on. It was a great opportunity to see results before they were published and to you know, talk to people, meet people. And when the conference was in Baltimore or DC, I was allowed to go. But when it was someplace like you know, San Diego, New Orleans, any place requires a flight, no, Mr. Junior Scientist is not worth the flight for its plane ticket, so I don't get to go. And so when I don't go to this consortium, I feel like I'm not a part of the company. I'm not a part of what we're working on. I'm not really helping in the way that I want to be helping. Now, in 2015, for the first time, the consortium was in Philadelphia. Hmm. Borderline case. I mean, I'm not worth a plane ticket, but maybe a train ticket? Maybe? And so I don't know if they're going to send me or not. I'm kind of assuming they won't. And then one day, the CEO of the company comes up to me and says specifically, Adam, if you go to Philadelphia, would you be able to stay the whole time? I'm like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can stay the whole time. He said, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, I will be there the entire consortium. And I'm thinking like, great, finally, I'm being asked to go. My presence is wanted there. And he said, that's great. We need you there. You're going to run the projector. <laughs> I was like, ah, damn it, but... But like, what, what, what can I say to him? No, because then, oh, Mr. Junior Scientist is getting a little too big for his lab coat. So, uh, fine, I'll go run the damn projector. Doesn't matter, I'm still gonna be there. I'm gonna watch the presentations. I'm gonna talk to collaborators. I'm gonna get the free nice dinner. It's all gonna be a good experience. So I send out an email to everybody who's presenting at the consortium saying, hey, uh, I'm gonna be running the projector. This consortium starts very early Thursday morning. Everyone send me your talks, please, no later than Wednesday you know where this is going. And, and I gotta tell you, like, the way they set this thing up, this is the consortium from hell. This is 200 talks over a period of two days. And I'm not talking about like multiple rooms. I mean 200 talks into one microphone for one audience. There are three minute talks, four minute talks, no time between them. It is awful. People are speaking like at seven different points over the two days, a single person. So. When I send out this email, I am expecting to receive about 200 talks. How many do you think people actually sent me by the requested deadline? I see someone putting up 10 fingers, five fingers, fucking three, three. I got three talks and I didn't get 197 talks. <clears throat> Why? Because the hierarchy, right? Everyone is way too important to be the one who sends their talks in advance. No, 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 they're all the special one. So I get to the consortium with nothing prepared and people are just throwing flash drives at me. They're like, oh, hi, I didn't send it to you, but I've got it on this flash drive. Mine's on five flash drives. Mine's in the cloud. Can you find it? I can't connect to the hotel Wi-Fi. What can you do about that? Mine's on a Mac. Is that going to be a problem? I'm going to cut and... Can I change my 37th slide that I sent to you 98 minutes ago? And it's, it's horrible. I can't get anything straight. I don't get to meet anybody. I don't even get to like go over and have coffee. I'm just sitting there with like taking this, taking this. And people, I emailed you my talk yesterday. And so I'm just I'm putting everything into place so that when the consortium begins, I can run it smoothly. And I'm not participating. I'm not even paying attention to the talks because I'm spending every moment worrying about the next session. The lowest person on the food chain in this giant room is still me. I am projector boy. 
The highest person on the food chain, incidentally, is our special guest, the uh, Minister of Health of Equatorial Guinea. And he is, uh, he's there in the front row, looking very regal. He has a translator sitting next to him, whispering in his ear the whole time. Uh, one of my jobs as projector boy ends up being getting water for the Prime Minister, uh, the Minister of Health of Equatorial Guinea's translator. So I am the translator's water bearer. And let me tell you, that is one thirsty-ass translator. So all day, it's just, it's just craziness and not enjoyable. And I'm wishing I was anywhere other than Philadelphia. I'm waiting to just be back on that damn train and leave again. We're about halfway through the second day when one of our collaborators gets up to speak. He's this older German doctor, shaved head, sharp nose, never blinks. Like late 60s, and, and he gets up, I put up his slides, and he looks at it, and he says, That is not the right slide. Put up the right slide. I don't have any more information than that. Oh, I'm, I'm remembering, like, okay, what did he send me? I don't know, everyone's giving me everything at once. Um, you know, I think, if I remember correctly, he's on the schedule three times, but he only gave me two talks, and neither one had a title that matched anything on the schedule. So, I, but I don't know where the other talk is, so I, I just kind of blank for a minute, and then he says, Yeah, well, uh, I suppose we will soldier on. I'm like, okay, great. Go ahead, do your thing. So he, he clicks, and now every slide that comes up, he's prefacing it like, uh, Well, this is obviously not what the slide is showing, but... I'm like, okay, I get it, fine. He's hoping to still talk through his presentation, but he, instead, he gets like a couple minutes into it, through a few slides, and then he stops again. He like pinches the bridge of his nose. He says, yeah, well, I suppose this should be a lesson to me. If you're going to do something, you should do it right. And then he looks right at me and he says, put up the right slides. As though I've had any opportunity in the past few minutes to fix whatever, you're, you're looking at my computer screen. You're all seeing it, it's projected. What do you think I was able to do in that time? And so then he, he throws out this like little crumb. He says, it's number two, it's number two. Like who would say that unless they think they're the only person in the room? But now the whole consortium is ground to a halt. Like no one's doing anything. They're all just stopping and watching me and watching my computer screen as I'm digging through folders. I'm like, I don't, did he email it? Did he send it? Did he flash drive it? Did he cloud it? So I'm going through things. Finally, I open this one folder. It has two files in it. They're named Philadelphia 1, Philadelphia 2. And as soon as I open it, he goes, yeah, it's number two. <laughs> like you named your files Philadelphia 1 and Philadelphia 2? Why don't I just call it like my PowerPoint of science? So like, fine, I open number two. He gives his presentation. He's done, people applaud, and after the applause dies down and it's quiet, he waits till it's quiet, and he's walking back to his seat, he stops and looks at me where I'm sitting with a projector, and he goes, that was not good. <laughs> what is it with my people and the Germans? <laughs> Never worked out for us. So, now I'm not only projector boy, I am bad projector boy. And I don't want to be there anymore. I don't want to be in front of our collaborators. I'm not benefiting in any way. I just want to leave. We get to the very end of the consortium. I'm like, finally, we can go. But no, everyone's got to give their little thank you speeches. And people are giving the thank you speeches. And I want to thank everybody. And the German doctor gets up to give a speech. And he's got this little smile on his face. And he starts his speech. And he, says, he turns right to the, the, um, the Minister of Health of Equatorial Guinea. And he says... Mon cher ministère, 
Merci beaucoup pour attendre aujourd'hui. And it's this little speech in French that he's very clearly practiced and he's very proud of. Heavily accented German French, but still French. And the room is quiet. Like, completely quiet. Even the translator has stopped speaking for the first time in two days. And as he's going through his speech, I think I understand why people are getting quiet. And I'm looking around, I'm seeing other people are seeing it too. I realize something that I think most of us realize that he doesn't realize. He gets to the end of his speech, he says, Et j'espère que nous pouvons travailler ensemble. And then the CEO of my company, who is standing right next to him, turns to the German doctor and he says one word, and it's the same word I was thinking. He says, Spanish. <laughs> because the language of Equatorial Guinea is not French, it's Spanish. It's the only Spanish-speaking country in all of Africa. I know this, I've been getting water for the translator for two days. Oh, I, I mean, because of the hierarchy, I couldn't do anything at that moment. It was so nice to see him taken down a peg, but what I wanted to do so badly was to stand up out of my projector chair, point at the German doctor and just say, that was not good. <laughs> Danke. That was Adam Rubin. Adam Rubin is a writer, comedian, and molecular biologist. He has appeared on the Food Network, Netflix, the Travel Channel, the Weather Channel, and currently hosts What on Earth and Ancient Unexplained Files on the Science Channel and Inventions That Change History on Discovery+. Plus. He writes for the Emmy-nominated PBS Kids show, Eleanor Wonders Why, and a monthly humor column in the American Association for the Advancement of Science Journal, Science Careers. And he's the author of two books. Before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. We have shows coming up in New York, Western Massachusetts, and Atlanta next week. We also have a show in Chicago later this month, too. You can check out storycollider.org shows for more information. And if you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storycollider.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Find out more at storycollider.org education. Also, for more updates and cool behind-the-stories pictures and other great content, you should follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and soon TikTok. Find us at Story Collider. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to The Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the story collider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Our second story is from Larissa Zhu. It was recorded at Turtle Swamp Brewing in Boston. The theme that night was freefall. 
1998, the movie Armageddon came out. And I watched Bruce Willis and Steve Buscemi and Ben Affleck train to be astronauts and save the world from an asteroid collision. And I said, I want to do that. I was 10 years old, and I imagined myself going out during the day to save humanity, to explore new worlds. And at night, as an astronaut, I would come back to my spaceship, and I would get to read all I wanted without my mom yelling at me to practice piano. <laughs> so to pursue that dream, I went to college to study physics. It was really hard. I came to hate the word intuitive because my professors would say, so you've got this system and intuitively you already know X about it. Now let's talk about the other stuff. And I would be like, what? Like none of it was intuitive to me. And so I thought, am I too stupid to be a physicist? I dabbled in the astronomy and the earth and planetary sciences departments, and I always fell out of my depth. By this time in college, I had become an American citizen, so I was allowed to work at aerospace companies in the US, and I interned one summer at a company that made satellites. And all that summer, I got to do absolutely nothing substantive or never get to touch the hardware, even though I begged my manager. So I looked at those dreams of space flight and I thought, well, that was naive. Every kid wants to be an astronaut when they're little. I was no different, but it's time to grow up and let go of those dreams. So what would I do instead? I was obsessed with food too. I love to cook. In high school, I would come home and my hands would just be itchy from wanting to make something. And in college, every chance I got, I tried to turn a final project into something food-related. So I thought, maybe I can make my way and have a career in the food world. But I didn't know anybody who did that. And one day, I went to a lecture by somebody who was a giant in the field. And I went up to him after the lecture. And I said, do you have some career advice for me? And he said, I got nothing for you. <laughs> so he said, he had walked a very winding path into this career in food, and it worked for him, but he couldn't recommend it to me. And I thought, well, you're a really crappy mentor. <laughs> but over time, I realized that was really liberating advice because I had permission to bushwhack my own path into the food world. And my intuition for how to do it would be as good as anybody else's. And so that's what I did. I explored science and cooking in my own way. I became a food scientist. And I worked for about seven years. Most of this time, I worked with a team where we wrote these big, beautiful, gorgeous cookbooks on the science of cooking. During this time, in my free time, I was getting really into rock climbing and backpacking, and I was eating a lot of crappy freeze-dried meals. And it turns out, freeze-dried foods are the basis of space food. And this technology really hasn't changed for many decades. And at that time, I was starting to hear these plans by NASA and by SpaceX that they were going to send people for longer durations and, go, and to go deeper into space. And I thought, do they expect people to eat freeze-dried meals for five years straight? And if not, what other new technologies can we invent that makes food tastier 
but still fits within the extreme requirements of spaceflight. I really wanted to work on this question. And I thought, well, I'll apply to a PhD program. So I went to food science departments and they said, oh, they don't have the aerospace engineering skills. I went to aerospace engineering departments and they said, well, they don't have the food skills. And then there was a professor who had a lot of experience at NASA and he said, anyways, it was way too early to work on this and I would never get funding. I got funding from NASA a year later. And then there were my mentors from the days of studying physics. And they said this. They said, this is fun, but it's not fundamental. This is engineering. It's just engineering. It's not physics. They called me a dilettante. They said, be careful of doing work that's merely cute. So all this feedback made me feel crazy. It was so obvious to me. The need for solutions to a problem that was becoming urgent, my perfect fit in terms of experience, uh, using science to make food more delicious, and my interest in getting into the space world. But I guess other people didn't believe it. Eventually, I ended up in a mechanical engineering program where the professor was supportive in the sense that he mostly left me alone. And I worked on food-related questions at first, but I didn't work on space food because I wanted to be taken seriously. One year into my program, I was at a happy hour for space enthusiasts, and a guy asked me, what is your dream? And I said, my dream is to develop cooking technologies for space where we can really cook, not just rehydrate and reheat. And he said, oh, that makes a lot of sense. How can I help? And I was like, what? Wait, I didn't have to convince you. I didn't, you just got my logic right away. And that meant the whole world to me. So that when a class came along that would give us the chance to develop an idea for microgravity, an experiment for microgravity, and help us develop it into reality, and then give us the chance to fly it on a microgravity flight, I applied. And this friend that I had made at that happy hour, he and I worked together, and we proposed that we would build a pot for cooking pasta in microgravity. Because lots of foods need to be both heated and hydrated to become cooked. Um, and the issue is that in space, when you don't have gravity to keep the water in contact with the heating source, you can get very poor contact, inefficient heating, and it can become dangerous. So our solution was to design a pot with a special shape and use surface tension and capillary forces to keep the water exactly where we want it to be. We applied for a spot and we got in. During those subsequent months, there were occasional moments where I was like, what? I'm, I'm doing this thing that I said I always want to do. I was so excited. And occasionally I would obsess over the perfect soldering joint because I was getting trained up in the machine shop and brushing off my soldering skills from college. And I was obsessing over the mechanical, the little nitty gritty details in the same way that I love to obsess over how to assemble and ice a cake beautifully in the kitchen. But most of the time I was not in flow state because most of the time I was freaked out out of my mind. <laughs> the time crunch was part of it. Uh, but another, th but more it was that I felt stupid all the time 
I had never built hardware like this, never built for it to fly in microgravity. There were lots of people giving me advice about how I should do this, how I should do that, and every decision I made felt so important and so possibly wrong. Another aspect was that microgravity flights are really rare and expensive. And I thought I had just one chance to prove that I wasn't crazy. They, the flight works like this. It looks like a regular plane, but inside all the seats are ripped out, except for a few rows at the back. We build our experiments inside these aluminum frame boxes that are bolted to the floor. And during the flight, we lie next to them and sort of babysit the experiment. The plane would take off and get to cruising altitude between 20 and 30,000 feet. And then it would start on an ascent. And this is very much like when you ride a roller coaster, climbing that hill and dropping off. So the parabola of a flight is the same thing, just magnified. And so it would ascend. And then when it goes into free fall, everything inside the plane that's not bolted down is also falling at the same rate. So it feels like we're floating, even though what we're doing is we're all falling. And we had been told that so many things go wrong, lots of flailing limbs, people just don't know what to do with themselves, knocking over experiments. So we had been told to double check, triple check, de-risk everything. I spent so much time just thinking through all the what ifs of how the experiment could go wrong. And then I thought, but I need to keep thinking because what if there's one thing that I didn't think of and that's the thing that happens during the flight and then my experiment will have failed and I'll have nothing to show for it and it'll be a failure. It didn't help that a few months into this, I broke two ribs in a freak accident. And then a few, months, a few weeks after that, the Atlanta shootings happened, during which a white man committed extreme violence against many Asian women. And I was reminded that pretending to fit in doesn't work. But I thought, I don't have time for that identity crisis. But I literally could not outrun my alienation because I had two fractured ribs and it hurt to even breathe. So when it came to the day of the flight, uh, I bolted my experiment in, we got to cruising altitude, I laid down next to it, and I remember looking up at the uh, ceiling and I just thought, you know what, it's okay. I just want to black out for the next 45 minutes and and I just want all of this to be over with. And I will go back and tell people that it failed, but that's okay because it was just a side project and I'll go back to my regular life and my real, quote unquote, real research. I just want all of this to be over with. Then at the end of the, at the top of the ascent, the flight attendant called out, nosing over. And then it went into free fall and we floated up gently off the ground. I did a few push-ups on my fingertips, <laughs> the easiest push-ups I will ever do in my life. And I had designed my experiment to run mostly autonomously, but I was so freaked out. I kept anxiously staying close to the box. Everybody else was like somersaulting. And I was just like, is there leaks? What's going on? And parabola after parabola, nothing bad happened. Nothing leaked, nothing exploded. The temperature ramped up as it's supposed to. It, it shut off as I had programmed it to. There was funky fluid behavior inside the pod that I hadn't anticipated and that would be cool to analyze afterwards. 
and it kept on working. But I was shutting down because I was getting so nauseous that by the 15th parabola, I was curled up in a ball and the flight attendants had to pick me up and dribble me like a basketball over everybody else and strap me down inside the, in the back. And I spent the last five parabolas dry heaving into a barf bag. <laughs> and there's footage of me during this entire flight. And there's a look on my face. And friends have seen that look. And they're like, wow, Larissa, you look super freaked out. And when I see that, I think of two things. I think it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous because I was literally vomiting the vomit comet. It was ridiculous that I was a body that was no longer confined to gravity for the first time in a lifetime. And the second thing was it was sublime. Because after all the hours in the machine shop and the hours at the soldering bench and all the people who said that I shouldn't do it, that I couldn't do it, that if they were me, they would do it differently, I had done it. I had cooked rigatoni and microgravity. Thank you. That was Larissa Zhu. Larissa Zhu is a PhD student at Harvard University where she develops food technologies for low resource environments. She loves to rock climb and cook, She's invested in building communities and transforming mentees into leaders, both in academia and on the mountain. The Story Collider is so grateful to Adam and Larissa for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, along with me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen, with help from education director Lily B. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez, and operations manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Miriam Zaring-Halam and Shane Hanlon, and Ari Daniel and Catherine Wu, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and until next week, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.